my brain is not working today. I was wondering why. Why is everything moving so sluggishly in my brain? And I realized, oh, <laughs> I've been up for 14 hours so far. So it's been a long day. So that can do that to you.、Um, hello. Welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show and happy Pancake Tuesday. It's Pancake Tuesday today. You have to make pancakes <laughs> or something flat that you can fry on your pan.、Uh, there's what? That Korean pancake? I think I think that counts. Kimchi, chong, chon. Yeah, that counts as well. I made、uh, Indian flatbread today. I made、uh, roti chanai or roti prata if you're, if you're from Singapore.、Uh, pancake Tuesday. And this is an article on the screen that I wrote, my goodness, 2012, eight, nine years ago. <laughs> so, Pancake Tuesday has its roots in a Christian tradition called Lent. Lent, and Lent describes this 40 day period of、uh, time leading up to Easter Sunday, meaning it's exactly 40 days up to Easter Sunday, the day when Jesus rose from the dead. And traditionally, during this period of 40 days, Christians will fast from rich food, you know, things that have Oreos in it, for the entire 40 days, the entire season of Lent. In fact, in, in、uh, Cambridge, this、uh, semester is called Lent. So that's where it comes from.、Uh, but I also go on to write that this poses a problem. What if you have too many Oreos at home? You know, you have too many, you know, Things that you shouldn't be eating during Lent.、Uh, so, what they do is that they eat up all that stuff the day before Lent. So, which is today, Pancake Tuesday. So, they make lots of pancakes with like、uh, cream and sugar and eggs and everything. They, they make it all and eat it all on one day before the season of fasting begins tomorrow. So, back then, they didn't have Oreos. Instead, they mixed all the ingredients to make lots and lots. Of pancakes, thus was born Pancake Tuesday. Although Oreo Tuesdays will be equally way awesome. <laughs> In other countries, Pancake Tuesday is called Fat Tuesday. It's sometimes known as Mardi Gras,、uh, which is simply French for Fat Tuesday. It's a big street party with parades, carnivals, fancy dressed city, fancy dressed in cities in like、uh, Rio de Janeiro and New Orleans. In other words, they are all the same thing Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, and Pancake Tuesday, whatever you call it. It's a time to cut loose and to celebrate. So, you know, make some pancakes, celebrate, eat some Oreos, celebrate today because it is Pancake Tuesday. And then, well, you don't have to do this. Many Christians do this, they fast over the next 40 days leading up to Easter. So, if you didn't know that, now you do. It's an interesting story, isn't it? It's really cool. Um, yeah, if you're in Malaysia, you can eat more roti chanai today. <laughs> anyway, welcome to the Daily Bible Reading Show. Today, we are reading four new passages from the Bible, and they are Genesis chapter 49, Luke chapter 2, Job 15, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the celebration that comes from. Being blessed with Oreos or being blessed with food. And thank you for times when we can rejoice and give thanks to you for all these good things. But thank you as well for the times when we can fast from these things, put them aside, so that we can concentrate on the greatest thing you've given us yourself. You are the giver of all good things. 
and not least your word. Help us, Lord, to listen and to be able to hear and to understand all that you give us and indeed you feed us in your word today. Help me to read it as clearly as I can. Help us all to understand, to hear it, and to obey it. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 49. Jacob called to his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble yourselves. And here, you sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, excelling in dignity and excelling in power. Boiling over like water, you shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed, then defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. My soul, don't come into their counsel. My glory, don't be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they killed men. In their self-will, they hamstrung cattle. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club. Cub, <laughs> excuse me. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who will rouse him up? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. The obedience of the peoples will be to him, binding his foal to the vine, his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be red with wine, his teeth white with milk. Zebulun will dwell at the haven of the sea. He will be for a haven of ships. His border will be on Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey lying down between the saddlebags. He saw a resting place that it was good, the land that it was pleasant. He bows his shoulder to the burden and becomes a servant doing forced labor. Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a serpent on the trail, an adder in the path that bites the horse's heels. These are names of snakes so that his rider falls backward. I've waited for your salvation, Yahweh. A troop will press on Gad, but he will press on their heel. Asher's food will be rich. He will produce royal dainties. Naphtali is a doe set free who bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful vine, a fruitful vine by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers have severely grieved him, shot at him, and persecuted him. But his bow remained strong. The arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. And there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. 
even by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have prevailed above the blessings of your ancestors, above the boundaries of the ancient hills. They will be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him who is separated from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he will devour the prey, at evening he will divide the plunder. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them and blessed them. He blessed everyone according to his own blessing. He instructed them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in a cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in a cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with, with the field from Ephron the Hittite as a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah, the field and the cave that is therein, which was purchased from the children of Heth. When Jacob finished charging his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed, breathed his last breath, and was gathered to his people. Interesting. So this is Jacob's last blessing upon um, his 12 sons. Uh, yesterday, he blessed Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And now he moves on to his actual 12 sons. And it's interesting that the firstborn, Reuben, isn't given the greatest blessing. Do you notice that? You know, because he defiled his father's bed, he slept with one of his maidservants, one of his wives. And so um, Reuben is disqualified, but not only Reuben, number two and number three, Simeon and Levi all, are also disqualified because that incident in Shechem where they killed all the guys after getting them, tricking them to be uh, circumcised. So he says they're going to be uh, scattered. They're going to be scattered all over Israel. And that's actually true, definitely, of Levi. Um, his tribe became the priestly tribe, and so they didn't have a piece of land of their own, but they were scattered across all the other tribes. So instead, you know, Judah, he's not treated like the firstborn, but compared to at least number one, two, three, he is elevated. You know, um, the highest position is given to Joseph. It's given to his two sons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. You remember they are considered as Jacob's sons. So not his grandsons, but they're considered on par with all these children. And they're given their inheritance as double. Therefore, Joseph receives like a double compared to everyone else. So Joseph receives the firstborn's inheritance of blessing. But Judah is singled out as well. Because he says here, let's look at Judah specifically, verse 8. Your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemy. So he's this powerful warrior who is praised by his own brothers. And your father's sons will bow down before you, meaning they will serve him. And here is this beginning of this promise, of this prophecy, of this expectation that through Judah... One day will come the king. 
And indeed, it comes Jesus. Well, immediately comes uh, King David, but from King David then comes King David's greater son, Jesus. But this is where it comes from: is this blessing, and how Judah initially was the one who wanted to sell Joseph into slavery. He is the one who repents, and he now speaks on behalf of all the brothers. He has really, really changed, and that changed character and that repentance inside of him. I think it's indicative of how he has been elevated and has been chosen to receive this honor. And indeed, eventually, he will supersede even Joseph.、Uh, there will come a time when King David will ascend to the throne. So Judah, therefore, is described in very kingly terms. Judah is a lion's cub. Keep saying club, but <laughs> a lion's、uh, son. You think of a lion king. So essentially, he is the real lion king. So from the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who will rouse him up? And here the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Meaning, not only will he rule, but his descendants will rule. Hence, between his feet, talking about his descendants, until it comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the people will be for him. Meaning, it's not necessarily Judah himself. Now, all these prophecies are given to Jacob's sons. But they're given to Jacob's sons, who will represent the twelve tribes, the twelve peoples, and out of the people of Judah will come this one son, who will, who will, whom all will wait for until it comes to this one son to whom it belongs. This prophecy and this fulfillment of this kingdom, and it says here the obedience of all the peoples will be to him. And here it's not just talking about Israel, but of the world. Will bow down and worship and obey this king. And lots and lots of、um, prophecies, therefore, are pointing forward to Jesus Himself. You know, the binding of His foal, this donkey, to the vine, and the donkey's colt to the choice vine. There's a prophecy there of Jesus. Remember, coming walking in on the donkey's colt, colt into Jerusalem. And therefore, he's coming as this promised king into his kingdom, and he's washed his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, and it's talking therefore of judgment. This king will judge, and yeah, so this is a very powerful king indeed. But this is a future prophecy. For now, you know, the one who receives the biggest blessing is Joseph. So, verse twenty-two, Joseph, above all his other brothers, notice he's all the way down here. It's、uh, ordered according to their age, but Joseph, the second youngest, he receives the longest blessing. So, Joseph is a fruitful vine by a string. He branches over the wall. The archers grieve him, but you know he's he's strong. He's able to fight back, and he's strengthened by God, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. And so even God will help you, verse twenty-five, by the Almighty who will bless you, and His blessing, blessings, blessings, blessings from heaven, blessings of the deep, blessings of the breast, blessings of your fathers, blessings of your ancestors. Again, you know this overflowing, non-stop, constant blessing that pours upon this one person, one tribe, Joseph, and he is therefore the firstborn, treated as such, compared to all his brothers, and they will all be on the head of Joseph. On the crown of the head of him who is separated, different, distinctive 
from his brothers. And finally, Benjamin, the youngest, he's described as this warrior, <laughs> like a wolf. So it ends、um, with instructions to bury Israel in this cave. So, this is the same cave where Abraham and Isaac were buried together with their wives.、Uh, Rachel wasn't buried here because she died along the way when she gave birth to Benjamin, if you remember, in Ephrath.、Uh, but、uh, Leah was buried there, and、um, he wants to be buried there as well. Not in Egypt, not in any other cave. And he mentions that this is the only land that they ever owned. You know, they're this rich people, they're supposed to be given this rich land, but actually, they don't own any of it. But it shows as well that expectation that God will bring them back. God promised that He will give them this entire land, all this blessing, and they don't quite have it yet. But Jacob, even as he's about to die, foresees that they will receive it beyond his death. God is such that His word will never fail. And so He says, you know, bury me there, bring me back there, don't leave me here. And He makes them promise. That he will be buried there. So, verse 28, bury me with my fathers. Yeah, and I think this is a picture, therefore, of a kind of faith and expectation and hope that will be fulfilled beyond our lifetime. You know, he, he's still expectant that God will do all these things, you know, all these blessings. Our blessings that he pours beyond their own lifetimes. You know, it's a fulfillment that will come beyond their children and their children's children. But this is God's blessing through the generations. And someone posted、uh, this comment in the Facebook group yesterday. Um, this was for the group from the Gospel Coalition that reads through the same Bible plan as I'm reading every day. And someone said that the way in which God moves, the pace in which God moves, is glacier speed. You know, God does not move at the same kind of timeline that we do. And you need to have that big perspective, that big biblical perspective of how God kind of like trickles through his blessings until it adds them and adds them until it finally is seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's therefore a call to be patient and a call to have perspective on how to be able to recognize God's blessings for what they are. So, that, yeah, so that's it. That's all I have to say on Genesis chapter 49. Luke chapter 2. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to enroll themselves, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up to Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to David's city, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to enroll himself in Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, as wife being pregnant. While they were there, the day had come for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in the bands of cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. There were shepherds in the same country staying in the field and keeping watch by night over their flock. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were afraid, or they were terrified. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For there is joy to you today in David's city, a Savior who is Christ. 
the Lord. This is the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly army praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. When the angels went away from them into the sky, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem now and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They came with haste and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby was lying in the feeding trough. When they saw it, they publicized widely the saying which was spoken to them about this child. All who heard it wondered at the things which were spoken to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these sayings, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, just as it was told them. When eight days were fulfilled for the circumcision of this child, for the child, his name was called Jesus, which was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When the days of their purification according to law Moses was fulfilled, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. He came into the temple, came into the into the spirit, in the spirit into the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus, they that they might do concerning him according to the custom of the law, then he received him into his arms and blessed God and said, Now you're releasing your servant, Master, according to your word, in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared before the face of all peoples, a light for revelation to the nations and the glory of your people Israel. Joseph and his mother were marveling at the things which were spoken concerning him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which is spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was one Anna, a prophetess, the, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years from her virginity, and she had been a widow for about 84 years, who didn't depart from the temple, worshipping with fastings and petitions night and day. Coming up at that very hour, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who were looking for redemption in Jerusalem. When they had accomplished all things that were according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, their own city, Nazareth. The child was growing and was becoming strong in spirit, being filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went every year to Jerusalem at the feast of the Passover. When he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Joseph and his mother didn't know it, 
but supposing him to be in the company, they went a day's journey, and they looked for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem, looking for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the middle of the teachers, both listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, "Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I were anxiously looking for you." He said to them, "Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house?" They didn't understand the saying which he spoke to them, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth. He was subject to them, and his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, and stature, and in favor. With God and men, long chapter, chapter two. The first bit is, I guess, familiar. It's the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ that we kind of repeat every year at Christmas, and we even act out with kids playing Mary and Joseph and the donkey, and they go down to fulfill this obligation of the census. Joseph was,、um, he was from Galilee, but he actually,、uh, well, he lived. In Galilee, together with Mary, but they had to go down to his birth town, which which was in Bethlehem, and and so that's what they did in this long journey, and there she gave birth. <laughs> so she,、uh, so Jesus was born in Bethlehem because of this census, this national census that everyone was obligated to、um, obey and fulfill, and go back home and then register. But because this was not their hometown, she goes there, and then there was no place for them to、uh, live.、Um, they had to go to this.、Um, there was no room for them in the end, verse seven. So、um, she gave birth to him and laid him in the feeding trough. That means it's a place where you feed animals. So laid him there. And the idea is Jesus's birth was not spectacular. It was not uh, befitting. Uh, you would think of a king. It was not very well noticed. You compare it to John the Baptist yesterday. He was born, and there was a lot of fanfare.、Uh, everyone was talking. You know, what's God doing? What's God doing? You know, there were miracles happening. His father, who was mute and then could speak again, but with Jesus, you know, no one knew who he was.、Um, he was ignored largely, except for this occurrence. That happened among these shepherds. So, verse eight: There were shepherds. They're hanging, hanging about in the field, looking after their flock, their sheep. And then angels appeared to them, and they thought they were going to die. You know, they're terrified. And the angels tell them, "Don't be, don't be afraid." And he says, "I'm going to bring you good news. This gospel that's going to fill you with great joy and fill all the people with great joy because there is this king that's been born." And that's why the gospel. A、uh, points towards this king. So,、uh, in the shortest summary of what the gospel is, it's saying Jesus Christ is king, or Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, there is born to you today in David's city. There is this savior who is Christ, the Lord. And so interesting, isn't it? I mean,、uh, all these different titles. This this baby is going to save you. This baby is going to rule over you. As king, Christ means king or Messiah, and this baby is going to be God, the Lord. 
and therefore to show you that this is true you will find this baby wrapped in cloths lying in this feeding trough so this feeding trough is very important <laughs> as a sign to show that this saying is real but also what kind of king this is this king is going to be a humbled king so suddenly as he finished saying this this one angel is joined by lots of companies of angels angel and a multitude of heavenly army. I like this translation rather than heavenly host because it is talking about an army of angels. And you think of an army, you have generals and soldiers, you have lots of them and all very tough men, you know, think of an heavenly equivalent of that, you know, tough angels who are carrying whatever it is that they carry into battle. But they are not going to battle. They're singing a song. They're, they're become this heavenly choir. Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And this is the ultimate sign of peace when the men of war sing songs of peace. <laughs> it's the, the angels have not come to do war, but they've come to announce this good news, this news of peace. And suddenly they, they disappear, they leave, and um, all the shepherds say, let's go and find out what's happening. And they find it just as they had been told. They find this baby, they find Mary and Joseph, and they find the baby again in that feeding trough. So, so important to see this feeding trough. And when they saw it, they ran away and they told, oh, wow, this amazing thing happened to us, publicized widely. But Mary, her reaction is slightly different. So they were going about telling everyone how amazing it was. They saw the angels, they saw the baby, and you know how everything had been spoken to them by these angels again. But Mary, she heard all these things, she thought about all these things, and she kept them inside her heart. She kept, What's going on? Uh, meaning, it's not just for this night. I think we find this phrase again and again, you know, Mary thinking about what's happening. You know, um, yeah, the, his mother kept all these sayings in her heart, meaning she kind of like accumulated all these memories. You think of those old photos that your mom kept of you and she takes it out and looks at them again and then sees how far you've come and what's happened, what changes have happened. And so she's kind of like still making sense of what's, what, what's going on, <laughs> especially to do with her son. You know, why is it that these shepherds are so excited over him? And why did the angels appear to them and not to me? Well, an angel did appear to her, but um, how do, do all these things add up? You know, why is it that God wants to make sure that out of all the people who knew that Jesus was born, it will be these like uh, shepherds? You know, today you think of garbage collectors or something like that. People who are hanging out in the open and doing their own thing and then God just calls them. Not the king, not the priest, not the prime minister, but these shepherds. God announces the birth of Jesus. Hmm. Anyway, uh, we move on to Jesus at eight days. And then as a kid, very, very quickly at eight days, he goes to the temple. And this completes the picture of how the story of Jesus began in the temple. You remember Zacharias, uh, father of John the Baptist, he meets God in the temple. And now Jesus, as he's born, uh, he meets these two old people in the temple. So there's Simeon and there's um, Anna. And both of them, uh, well, are godly people who have been looking forward to God doing something in the land. For Simeon, he's been waiting uh, for the consolation of, is of Israel. Is that right? Simeon, righteous and and devout looking for the consolation of Israel, verse 25. Meaning 
he's waiting for Israel to be saved and consoled, I guess. But I think rescued. The idea that Israel has been under foreign oppression for so long, and therefore, you know, want, wanting God to come and rescue them. But interestingly, uh, when he sings this song and praises God, he praises that Jesus will be a light of revelation to the nations. And then also a glory for the people of Israel. So not just redeeming God's people in this ethnic tribe and this location, but actually for all the nations. You know, he'll be king of all the world. Uh, similar with Anna, you know, she had been devout. You know, um, eighty-four years. You know, she was a widow, and therefore she spent most of this time hanging around the temple. <laughs> and so she. When she saw Jesus coming at that very hour, she gave thanks to God and spoke of Him to all those who were looking again for that consolation, for that redemption in Jerusalem. Again, two people who have been looking for it for all their lives, finally being able to see, finally being able to to see how God was about to bring to fulfillment everything they've been looking forward to.、Um, you know, you think again of Jacob, who is happy to die now that he can see his son again. It's like something you've been waiting for your entire life, and I think I think the contrast there for、uh, to us who read this gospel、uh, is we get to see this. You know, what are you waiting for? They waited for it all their lives, and finally it's come. But for us, it's already come. What are what are we waiting for in terms of even just praising God, <clears throat> seeing things from God's perspective? And therefore, bowing the knee and confessing Jesus as God. So,、uh, Joseph, they pondered all these things. They went back home. <laughs> yeah. So again, they recorded this incident. What interesting thing that happened in the temple? But yeah, maybe they didn't quite understand what was going on. And then fast forward, the child is growing. Verse forty became strong in spirit. Filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Jesus grew and grew and grew, and every year the parents would bring him back and back and back to Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover. And there's this one incident during one of these times when he they were back in Jerusalem. Jesus was 12 years old, verse 42, and according to the customs, they went there and they did all the custom things. And at the end, after all the festivals were finished, they're on their way back, and they didn't realize that Jesus was left behind. You know, they didn't realize it because they had a big group, big company, traveling with them. Remember, they lived in Galilee and Nazareth. They traveled all the way down to Jerusalem. This was on their way back, and so they thought they were, he was with one of the relatives. But they tried looking for him, they didn't find him. And after three days, this is. Without mobile phones, without WhatsApp, you know, tracking location, they finally found him back in the temple. And Jesus said, "Why didn't you know I would be here all this while?" Jesus was sitting there. He was asking questions, listening questions to the teachers. They were all amazed with it,、uh, with his understanding and his answers. And his mother said, "You know, son, Ataya, why, why are you treating us like this? You know, we were so worried. We were, we were anxiously looking for you." And Jesus says, "Didn't you know I must be in my Father's house?" Jesus already had this awareness of God's presence at a young age, and had this wisdom to be able to even ask questions and answer questions about the Bible. Jesus here is displaying that wisdom that that you know he's growing in in stature, even at this young age. But they didn't understand. Verse fifty, they didn't understand what he spoke to them. 
and so they just brought him home. Uh, but his mom again kept this in her scrapbook, you know, for another day to wonder, you know, how does all this add up? You know, who is this child? And uh, well, the angel story tell us he's savior, he's king, he's God. Hmm. Cool. So that's Luke chapter two. Job chapter 15. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered, Should a wise man answer with vain knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you do away with fear and hinder devotion before God, for your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the language of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I, yes, your own lips testify against you. This is Eliphaz speaking to Job, condemning him for speaking out against God, because a wise man wouldn't do that. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't speak with vain knowledge, wouldn't speak with this hot wind. Um, and actually, whatever he says condemns him. That's what Eliphaz is saying. Your own mouth condemns you, verse 6, not I. Verse 7, are you the first man who was born or were you brought out before the hills? Have you heard the secret counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? How do you understand which is not in us? With us are both the gray-headed and the very aged men, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you, even the word that is gentle toward you? Why does your heart carry you away? Why do you eye, your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? What is man that he should be clean? What is he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, he puts no trust in his holy ones. Yes, yes, the heavens are not clean in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks iniquity like water. So Job is here compared to himself, Eliphaz and his friends, and compared to God. And in both comparisons, Job is apparently nobody. Ah, yeah, he says, you know, we are, um, we are the gray-headed and the very aged men older than your father, meaning we are wiser than your father. We, we, we are the accumulation of knowledge, but you are nobody compared to us. But also he is nobody compared to God. You know, have you heard the secret counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? You know, Job, he claims you are boasting against God. You, you are no comparison with him. Uh, and he ends by saying, you know, you are unholy. You know, even God does not put trust in his angels. And, you know, who are you compared to his angels? How much less will he put uh, one in who is abominable, abominable and corrupt? Speaking about Job again, nothing compared to the angels, nothing compared to God. But he is actually a sinful who drinks iniquity like water. And this phrase, you know, have you heard the secret counsel of God, um, is kind of like uh, he's, he doesn't understand what he's saying because obviously we as the readers, we've already seen, you know, God having this debate with Satan and that's how this whole wager came about with Job. And actually we as a reader, we've seen, we've actually had the privilege of understanding what's going on in God's counsel. And here is... 
um, Eliphaz at least claiming that he has that position compared to Job. Verse 17, therefore he says, you know, I'm going to teach you. I will show you, listen to me, that which I've seen I will declare, which wise men have told by their fathers and have not hidden it to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days. Even the number of years that are laid up before the oppressor, a sound of terrors is in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come on him. He doesn't believe that he will return out of darkness. He is waited for by the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that the day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish make him afraid. They prevail against him as a king ready to be to the battle because he stretched out his hand against God and behaves himself proudly against the Almighty. He runs at him with a stiff neck, with the thick shields of his bucklers because he has covered his face with his fatness and gathered fat on his thighs. He has lived in desolate cities and houses which no one inhabited, which were ready to become heaps. He will not be rich, neither will his substance continue, neither will their possessions be extended on the earth. He will not depart out of darkness. The flame will dry up his branches. He will go away by the breath of God's mouth. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time. His branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape as the vine and will cast off his flower as the olive tree for the company of the godless will be barren and fire will consume the tents of bribery they conceive mischief and produce iniquity their heart prepares deceit so here in this long ending he describes the person who is being cursed by god the wicked man you know this wicked man you know all his days he's just suffering and, you know, he's this oppressor. He's this um, person who's just lifted up his hand against God. And he's just very stubborn, runs at him with a stiff neck. And therefore, he is very proud. You know, the sim symbolism of this fatness in his thighs. You know, he's, he, he's just someone who's bad, <laughs> who, who's proud and lifted up his hand against God. And as a result, you know, he will be punished. You know, he would be punished even down to his descendants. He will shake off his unripe grape. This is talking about his descendants. He'll cast off his flower as, as the olive tree. And the company of the godless will be barren and it consumed the tents of bribery. And so it's the idea that God will judge you. God will judge your descendants. You will be barren because you've been proud before God. And it's working backwards from Job's situation. You know, Job, your children have been killed. You are barren. And now you're suffering and you're being punished. Therefore, you have been proud before God and you need to repent. And it's therefore working backwards from circumstance to evaluate character, not the other way around. It's saying, therefore, if you're suffering, you must have done something evil. And therefore, you need to repent before God. You should not complain that you have, you're innocent and that you are blameless. And therefore, you should not ask for God to listen to your complaint because that just shows that you're deluded. But that's, um, that's kind of tragic because it's saying that anyone and everyone who's suffering, therefore, deserves it. That's a really cruel thing to say to a friend who's 
you know, who has lost their children, who is going through unjust suffering or even tremendous suffering or any kind of suffering, saying you deserve this. And that's, that's really cruel and also quite kind of ignorant because lots of innocent people suffer and lots of wicked people prosper. So yes, but that's the sum of the argument that at least I can see from Eliphaz here in Job chapter 15. Cool, let's move on to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers, I couldn't speak to you as to spiritual, but as to fleshly, as to babies in Christ. <laughs> I fed you with milk, not with meat, for you weren't yet ready. Indeed, you aren't ready even now. So he's speaking to this church as their former pastor, saying that after all this while you haven't grown up, you're still kids, you're still, you still have to be taught the basics you should be um you know he's feeding them with milk and here milk is not talking about pure spiritual milk milk elsewhere is talking about the bible is talking about spiritual truths but here is they can't handle the solids this they still can't really think in terms of what the bible is teaching them to think in terms of spiritual thinking because they're still fleshly they're still babies they haven't grown up in christ four verse three you are still fleshly for insofar as there is jealousy, strife, and faction among you, aren't you fleshly? And don't you walk in the ways of men? So equating ways of men, what everyone else thinks, with what is fleshly, and therefore they, um, you're, you're with jealousy and strife, this argument, you envy one another and you also fight one another. And that's actually the flesh talking, it's not the spirit. And that's what everyone does, the ways of men. Verse 4, for when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, aren't you fleshly? Who then is Apollos, and who is Paul, but servants through whom you believed, and each as the Lord gave to him? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are the same, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's farming, God's building. So here they are arguing about there are different leaders, there are different pastors, and actually the leaders and the pastors are all on the same team. They are dividing them in their heads you know these these followers are saying oh no you know this is better than that one that one's different from this one mine's better than yours i follow this one you follow that one but no they're on the same team because they're both trying to encourage you trying to build you up as god's farm god's building god's agriculture and at the end of the day they can't do anything except what they've been given to do which is just to plant to water and that kind of growth, if there is any growth at all in the church, is something that only God can do. And so, so it says something about their faithfulness as ministers. You know, they just do the job. And whatever results they get, that's up to God. Whether it grows or indeed if it doesn't grow, you know, only God can give the increase. Twice it says God gave the increase. God gave the, the increase. And I think on the flip side, it's saying to the people in this church, you know, it's not because you were smart that therefore you grew. 
whether in number or in intellect or ability or in this gift that you claim to have from God, but rather it's always God who is gracious to give this increase. It's not, again, because of that particular pastor or that particular ministry. Again, it's because of God only who can bless and graciously give that increase and that growth because it is God, uh, God's building. It's God's work. And all you can do as a minister of God is just to do what God gives you to do. Different, different jobs. You know, Paul, he planted or Paulus water. They're different jobs, but they're part of that same, you know, ministry, that same big picture whereby it is God who is doing all the work of building his church. Verse 10, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation and another, another person builds on it. But let each man be careful how he builds it. For no one can lay any other foundation than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ. But if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, or stubble, each man's work will be revealed. For the day will declare it, because it is revealed in fire, and the fire itself will test what sort of work each man's work is. If any man's work remains which he built on it, he will surely receive a reward. If any man's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, but as through fire. Interesting perspective on judgment, what the judgment that day, that fire will do. And here it will evaluate the work of this ministry, of this gospel. So you can only build on one hand, only on this foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Only in Jesus Christ. Again, it's talking about God's building, talking about the church, talking about, you know, people, you know, how you bring them to Christ, how you build them up in Christ. But then first of all, it talks about these materials. So there are three solid, expensive materials, gold, silver, stones. But then there are three cheap ones, very perishable and very burnable flammable <laughs> materials, wood, hay, stubble. And one day, God will test it with fire. See which one burns up. And so the one that remains will receive a reward. That means if you've built with a preciousness, with solidness, that will stand the test of not just time, but that judgment. But then if you build with cheap materials, with things that don't last, then that will be destroyed. That person himself may be saved and will be saved, but he, like escaping fire, <laughs> like you run out of the burning building. So it's kind of a shame if you've spent your whole life doing this. And I'm not quite sure, you know, how to apply this because on the one hand, you know, Paul is speaking on behalf of himself with Apollos as those who are doing the work of ministry to people who are the fruit of that ministry. So is he saying, um, therefore, you know, there are certain ministers who are building with the right materials and right materials, I guess, talking again about preaching the gospel in a way that makes Christ central. That seems foolish to the world, but is puts Christ at the cornerstone and then builds up based on that cornerstone on that foundation with a kind of precious materials that come from maybe 
teaching the gospel over and over again, pointing back to Christ. And therefore, there's a kind of rigidity, there's a kind of solidness to that kind of building that is built up from this kind of ministry. And the one with work, with hay and with wood and this flammable material might be talking about um, the other teachers who've come with, which sounds very suave, very impressive, but actually they have no substance. Uh, but again, you know, is he talking about him versus them? Or is he actually talking directly to the people who are God's building? Somehow saying that you have a part in this as well, that you will be tested and your work in your hand in ministry, your, your involvement in it will also be tested by God in the last day. Um, I don't know. Um, I've heard, I've heard, you know, positions from both ends and I've, I see senses in them, but either way, I think, um, you know, what a shame it is if you were to see a church that, I mean, just the possibility of there being unhealthy churches, that that's just scary, that, that will uh, be tested and will be burned up at the end of time. It will be, it's just such a waste to see ministries go down in flames like that. Verse 16, don't you know that you are the temple of God and that God's spirit lives in you if anyone destroys god's temple god will destroy him for god's temple is holy which you are let no one deceive himself if anyone thinks that he is wise among you in this world let him become a fool that he may become wise for the wisdom of the world is foolishness with god for it is written he has taken the wise in their craftiness and again the Lord knows the reasoning of the wise, that it is worthless. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All are yours and you are Christ's and Christ's are God. Christ is God's. Sorry. Two things about this last paragraph. Paul invites us to become fools for Christ. And Paul tells us that all things are ours in Christ. So firstly, Paul invites us, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Hmm. Let him become a fool. Some things, especially in ministry, especially in speaking the gospel, will always be foolish. You can't run away from it. And you almost have to intentionally be foolish in order to do that. Actually, going to ministry, a lot of people will tell you you're doing something stupid. And you have to be willing to be thought of as stupid and looked at as stupid. Otherwise, you will never become wise. In other words, it's not a side doorway of becoming successful and important and influential. No, it's a way for you to be looked at as foolish you know you've wasted your life you've done something that you know no one else is telling you to do no one else wants you to do but you know this is just god's way of you know making sure that the gospel deserves receives all the glory and you get none of it and you you, you don't get distracted by it and i think this is kind of refreshing i guess uh, sometimes we are too afraid of being looked at too stupidly <laughs> And, you know, we're just too self-conscious and there's something about uh, intentionally doing the silly thing 
not for stupidity's sake, but、um, knowing that compared between the options of the thing that is safe and secure and looks really good, and this thing that seems, why are you doing that? You know,、um, that isn't going to pay off. But, you know, it pays off in terms of, you know, that this is actually what God wants you to do. This is God's way of doing things. This is just something that will, you know, will pay off in the really, really long term, not in the short term. You know, that kind of foolish way of thinking is God's way of thinking. Because if you only do things according to the wisdom of the world, that is foolishness to God. You know, it's,、uh, it's, it's almost worth、um, evaluating all the most important things in your life against these kind of criteria. What job you're going to take, you know, where, you know, what, you know, what kind of ministry to serve in. You know, serve the preaching one ministry in front, or serve children's church, or serve with old people's ministry, or serve with orphanages, serve in, in, in places where you know, it's not in the city. You know, everyone wants to go to that big seminary, everyone wants to go to that big church, everyone wants to work with that big pastor, everyone wants to eventually write that book. But what if you did none of that? <laughs> I actually said that once too. A bunch of PhD students in、uh, the local seminary here in Cambridge. The, the principal was not very happy with me. He came in and it immediately interrupted me. I, I asked these two students who were about to finish their PhDs and I asked them,、um, So, what are you going to do after this? And they both, two of them, both of them told me, you know, they're going to. These two very big, impressive churches, and since I'm going to be working with these two pastors, and then I hope to be able to be serving there and working in this kind of ministry. And what I've told them, I told them, what if you, what would be the opposite of that? <laughs> and what if you did that instead? What is the opposite of whatever this kind of plan that you have that seems really, really good? But why not just consider what is the opposite of that? Or even if you didn't do any of that at all, that means the sum end of your training was just this. You didn't go and train some more, but immediately you just、uh, stayed here and you just did whatever ministry was available to you. And in fact, you chose the one that no one else wanted. You know, They, they looked at me. <laughs> one guy was holding his biscuit like that. He, he was half going to eat it and then he, he didn't even put it in his mouth. He just stared at me and then the principal came and interrupted me. <laughs> don't, don't go and disturb the students. But you know, sometimes. Um, this kind of ministry tracks and this kind of like、um, impressive and secure ways towards you know, doing God's work, I, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that's something that will keep you, you know, going in the long term. There's something really, really foolish. We need to admit that. There's something really, really foolish about、um, telling people about Jesus, telling people to give their lives to Jesus, you know.、Um, Just even speaking to people about God. There's something very embarrassing about that. And unless you realize that, I think either you will never do it or you do it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, so that's the first thing. Paul invites us become a fool. You know, join me. I'm a fool. People think of me a fool. Join me. Become a fool. But secondly, he says, all things are yours. I think this goes back to the arguing, oh, I follow Paulus. I follow. I follow、um, Uh, Paul, he says, Paul, Apollos, even Cephas, everything, everything is yours. God has given you everything. We are serving you together. Why are you arguing? Don't you realize that God has blessed you with everything in Christ? You're arguing over these crumbs when God has given you 
the entire world, all the blessings of eternal life through His Son. And so, really, really, the things that you're arguing about are just so petty. No, why, why do you still fight over these small things? Don't you see that whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or the world, or life or death, things present or things to come, all are yours. You are Christ's, and Christ belongs to God. I think that's just such a perspective that sees us, you know, all, all the world, everything to us because we belong to Christ and then Christ belongs to God. That kind of perspective just makes us go, wow, you know, there's, there's nothing else, nothing else for us to be fighting over. It is all ours already. You know, it's like someone, imagine um, a father, a very, very rich tycoon bequeathing all his estate to his two sons, you know, more money than he could ever, ever uh, spend or eat or use up everything for their whole 10 lifetimes, 100 lifetimes, and they're arguing over something stupid like, I don't know, a car or who gets this particular house when they have like a thousand houses, that kind of thing. And that's the kind of thing sometimes that uh, we Christians, you know, I wonder uh, it would resolve, I think in a positive way, it would almost resolve a lot of our pettiness if we just saw, hey, you know, sure, let that person have that thing. <laughs> why, why do I need to win that argument? You know, Christ has already justified me. I already have eternal life. If I lose this life, I have eternal life. If I lose this blessing, I have eternal blessings. And really, even Christ himself, you know, belongs to God. You know, there's a kind of like, you know, we, we have these things because we belong to Christ and Christ himself belongs to God. That means we only have these things because by association with him. It's not anything I've done, but he's like gifted it to me. Father gives it to Jesus. Jesus gives it to us. And therefore, in turn, we should be giving it. We should be sharing it with one another. We should not be fighting over all these temporary things and petty things. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for that perspective that is just so generous, that you've given us everything in Christ, but also that you remind us that we belong to him and he belongs to you. And so it's this connection with him, this inheritance from him, that if we see this generosity that comes through him, we see that we have nothing to be insecure about. Everything has already been given us. And therefore, we have everything to be generous with. We should be open-handed with all these blessings knowing that they are eternal we cannot lose them but also knowing that they are to be shared they are ours in christ with everyone else who is also in christ our brothers and sisters in christ help us to rejoice together to be generous towards one another and to love one another for we share in the same love and the same inheritance in him we thank you and we praise you in jesus name amen bye